Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. We started, we got partway through the chapter on Sunday, but I actually want to back up and start again uh, just to make sure uh, we get this chapter. And the reason is, is because this is a portion of the book that it doesn't even matter if people know that the book of Revelation exists. They've heard something from this chapter. So uh, I think it's important that we grasp the chapter in its context pretty thoroughly. Uh, like I said on Sunday, is, especially if you're somebody who takes notes, uh, I want to start our review in Revelation 4. I mean, I'll give you a little bit before then, but I want to start in chapter 4. So if you want to turn back there, we kind of scan through this. It'll help you as you remember what's in the book and keep our context going. But remember the book is Apocalypsis is the name that is translated Revelation. It literally means revealing. And that's because the message was not hidden like we look at it and think of it today. It was hidden from the Romans who, you know, didn't, weren't familiar with this type of writing. But it was very familiar to the Jews. It had been used many times in their writings previously. Besides the fact that a lot of it was based on the things that the prophets had, had written. And they were very familiar with the prophets. So uh, that also makes it easier to understand what the signs are for us today. Uh, we also know things about the signs like they don't represent themselves, right? If it's a sign doesn't represent itself. We know you've got to keep it in a first century context. We know that sometimes in the text God uh, answers what it means directly in the text of Revelation. And that will come up in just a second when we get ready to start chapter 13 again. Uh, but the first part of the book is an introduction in chapter 1. And then these letters written to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Which dealt with things that were happening in those congregations and how they need to be corrected or Jesus was going to bring judgment on them. When you get to chapter 4, now we get to this external part of, of, of what's happening with the churches. And, and that's where John really starts to see these visions that, that are apocalyptic in nature. So let's just summarize each one of the chapters. Chapter 4 deals with God's still on his throne. He is worthy of worship. No matter what it looks like with Rome, God's in charge. Chapter 5. Yeah, remember God in chapter 4 had this book in his hand or this scroll in his hand and it had seven seals on it and nobody could open it. So in chapter 7, it's revealed that Jesus is the lamb that was wounded. In other words, his death, burial and resurrection made him qualified then to open those seals. And so he also is worthy of worship. Chapter 6. Yeah, the the first four seals uh, in chapter 6 has to do with the future. See, those seals are talking about what's coming. They're not about Rome as much as they are about what's coming. And the first four are dealing with this persecution continuing to elevate on the church. Chapter 7 now. Actually, there's more than four open in that chapter. There's six of them open. But chapter 7 is what? Yeah. It's kind of a pause or a parenthesis that is an answer to the question at the end of chapter 6. And that question was, if this is what's going to happen, then who can survive? If Rome's going to be this intense against the church, then how can the church make it? And uh, so in chapter 7, the answer is, well, God knows who belongs to him. Uh, and he, he's identifying them in a symbolic way in chapter 7. All right, chapter 8. Okay, you open the seventh seal, and the seventh seal reveals to us seven trumpets. These trumpets, a trumpet was a call to action, right? It could be a, a charge into battle. It could be a call into defense. It could be a calling of the people into a, to a meeting or something like that. It's a trumpet. It's a sign of, of a call to something. And so these seven trumpets are now revealed. Uh, and what they're going to show to us is a call to judgment. 
but it's not a complete judgment. It's a partial judgment. So, uh, so what's, what, are the, what are the first four trumpets about? And that's all in chapter 8, by the way. Yeah, the consequences of the actions of the Roman Empire are, are happening in nature. And what happens in nature affects everybody involved with everybody on the earth, right? All right, chapter 9. All right, the fifth and sixth trumpet sound, which they're different. We're not dealing with just nature anymore. In the fifth and sixth trumpet, all of a sudden, we got judgment on individuals. So there are consequences of the actions of Rome that are happening on individuals. Chapter 10. There's another pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just like there was between the sixth and seventh seal. There's another pause. (coughs) Excuse me. And chapter 10 deals with what pause? That's 11. John's job. Chapter 10 is John's role. So John, as this... uh, (coughs) As this continues on, you got a job to do. And your job is, remember there's this, this book that the angel has and John's told to eat it. And in your mouth it'll taste like honey and in your belly it's going to be very bitter. And so what, he's told, what he does is, he does that and symbolically what that means is he gets this message from God and it's going to, uh, he's going to have to continue to proclaim it, right? Okay, what's chapter 11 now? Now it's got, the church got a role too. See, what it looks like, and this is a significant chapter in chapter 11 because it looks like Rome wins. You know, we get to this place where the, the persecution upon the church is so intense that it's almost like the, the church is ceasing to ex- exist on the earth, and they're rejoicing over it. The people are rejoicing over it. Uh, but the, the deal is, thank you, <coughs> the deal is, I should cover that microphone before I do that, shouldn't I? Uh, the, the deal is they're, they're not dying, are they? No matter what it looks like, they're not dying. And so God is strengthening them, and we have the lampstands, and they look like they're dead in the street for three and a half days, but then they raise up, and everybody's afraid now. All right, chapter 12. Okay, chapter 12. Hold on, let me get a drink. Let's try this. As you get into chapter 12, you're at this place now where the seventh trumpet has sounded. That's in chapter 11. And so what God does at this point is he reveals, because there's going to be seven woes. Remember I told you there are three sets of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven woes. So before these woes start to happen, what God does is he's talking to this church, that, uh, the church universally, obviously, that was strengthened in chapter 11. Uh, now in chapter 12 he starts to say, I want you to, sh- to show you, to prove to you that I can accomplish and will accomplish what I promised you. I want to go back in time and just show you what you, what you already know, remind you of what you already know. But I also want to tell you about some things that you don't know that happened. And so he kind of summarized very quickly history. And he talks about you know, making them a nation. They're a woman with child, right? And the faithful remnant was protected by God all throughout all of the problems that they had, all of the captivity and the oppression, even in the days of the judges. They're all, everybody that is faithful in a remnant is protected by God. Now that didn't mean they didn't go through challenges, right? Or difficulties. They went through the same captivity everybody else went through. But the remnant was brought forth, brought, brought back from that. So, uh, so it's this woman that's the remnant primarily in the beginning of Israel, and she's bringing forth a child. And that child, we know, is the Messiah, right? Okay, the devil doesn't want that to happen, and so he seeks to devour this child even at birth, which we talked about Herod was the application of that, right? But it didn't work. 
It doesn't work. And then all of a sudden we summarize very quickly forward to the time of his death and his ascension. And the devil tries to even defeat him at that point. And, and then they hear about this battle that they didn't even know occurred between Michael and the angels and the devil and his angels. And then he's cast back down to the earth. And what does he do? Tries to destroy the church, which is the woman that was brought out of that. The, the remnant, remnant under the old and remnant under the new is this woman. So he tries to destroy the church, but the problem is that doesn't happen either. So then what's he do? Then he comes after the individuals, the Christians. Now, uh, the significance of that is that statement that I talked about, how the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, and we dealt with it on Sunday about the account of Job when it begins with Job's, uh, the devil standing before God, accusing God and accusing Job, right? And so you have this period of time before the blood of Jesus washes away sin where God, Satan has he has access because our sins aren't washed away without the blood of Jesus, right? And so if that has not yet been shed, then he has access. But once this sacrifice is made and death has been conquered, well, he doesn't have God's ear anymore. So he can't accuse us before God, but he can try to defeat us. And so that's what he does. And that takes us to chapter 13. Now, again, we're in this context now of timing stay with the timing old testament israel the the death of jesus the day of pentecost and forward so we're still early in the spread of christianity right and early in the spread of christianity what john sees in chapter 13 is two beasts now i know the movies i know the so-called preachers Uh, i know what they say on chapter 13 I know that what people see when they read chapter 13, I know why they do it, because it's what they've been told or, or conditioned to think. You read about the beast in chapter 13, and you automatically think the devil. That's just what people do. That's why I told you at the very beginning, the important thing to do in studying really any book of the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, is you start it from scratch. You don't start it with an already understanding of what everything means. You start and you study it from scratch, because if you had the truth, you're going to get back to it, aren't you? And if you didn't have the truth, well, you want to get to it, don't you? So you don't want something blocking your way to the truth. So you, you, if you approach this chapter with the belief that this beast here, or either of these beasts, is a devil, you've missed something significant. Uh, who is a devil in this book? Does, this, does God tell us who he is? He's a dragon. That's chapter 12. The dragon's the one trying to consume the child and trying to consume the woman and destroy the woman and battling with God. And verse 9 of chapter 12 tells us the dragon is the devil. So the dragon's in chapter 13, but he's not the beast. There is a Leviathan. There are two, there are two creatures at the end of Job that are literal creatures, yes. Yeah, but this is a symbolic thing. That was a literal thing. Okay, all right, now I'm going to start chapter 13 over again now. And the part that we've already covered, I'll cover quickly. I just want to keep this thought going so that we pick it up for the end of the chapter. guess I ought to put my glasses on then I can see. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea and having seven heads and ten horns on his horns, ten crowns on his heads, a blasphemous name. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of the bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, his And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, I talked about this on Sunday, and as we continue later on the book, you're going to get some names of some emperors that are going to list out, that are going to connect back to this 
here in the beginning of chapter 13. But the significant thing here is this beast has gained its power or position of authority or existence really by the power of Satan. So the Roman Empire, which this is the emperor, the Roman Empire has behind it a power of evil. You see that, right? Okay, let's see what that means. Verse 3. That beast, the dragon's the devil, the beast, this beast is the emperor. Verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, I told you that's a little confusing there, but that I think that his history tells us that I think that what this is dealing with is a myth uh, of Nero. How that Nero was the one that began persecution initially on Christianity at AD 64 when the city of Rome had burned. Uh, Nero blamed it on Christians, which then began the persecution. But that was really centered around Rome. Uh, but Nero, Nero died, and since he died, well, he couldn't be a god, could he? I mean, gods can't die, can they? And so the myth was, well, you know, that Nero's going to come back. And when Nero comes back, all this is going to grow and develop. And so Domitian, later on in the first century, people looked at him and saw the way that he acted and the things that he did and what he claimed. People had to worship him as a god. And that will come up more in this chapter as we go on to the next beast. But what they did is they took that to be Nero revived. And the theory was called Nero Redivivus, or I don't speak Latin, so that's probably incorrect. But that's the right spelling, I guess, if you want to spell that out. Uh, so the idea is this mortally wounded head is healed again. And because of that, everybody worships him. So everybody looks at Domitian and said he is the revival of Nero. And so they worship him as a, as a god, which he demanded, by the way. Keep going. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? How do they worship the dragon just by worshiping the beast? How, does, how are they worshiping the devil by worshiping the emperor? Yeah, if you're not worshiping God, who else could you follow? There's only two options. This is the first beast still. Yeah, we'll come up with the second beast here in a few minutes. Verse 5. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years, which three and a half, not literal again, three and a half representing a time of trial, our tribulation, and so basically what we're told here is the persecution of the emperors is not going to last. It's going to be bad, but it's not going to last. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. So basically it says, look, you've got to listen to this. If you're paying attention, you really got to listen. And that is this emperor is not going to endure. Persecution is going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. He's a, God's not on his side. And as he is persecuting the church with this kind of violence and 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 the, the falsity of all of it, it's all going to come right back on him as well. And they're going to fall. So you've got to pay attention to that. Okay, but there's another beast now. Verse 11. Saw another beast coming out, out of the earth. He had two horns 
like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Okay, so a couple things very quickly about this beast. One of them is the horns. What did we, uh, have we seen horns before? Have we talked about the symbolism of that? Power, horns representing power. So they have power, specifically identified the fact that they have two of them. What does two mean? Something that's been strengthened. So this is a power that has been given to them that's stronger than they could have on their own. That's where we start. And the second thing is, well, what do you speak like? Who's the dragon? Okay, so he's speaking falsehoods and lies, right? Because the devil is the father of lies. Okay, but there was one more thing in between there. He's like a lamb. What have we seen about a lamb in this book? What? The seed, but I'd go even deeper than that. He was the lamb that was slain in chapter 5. This is a religious figure that is leading. The lamb that was slain was a religious figure. It's the Messiah. But a lamb is a representative of that sacrifice, right? The one who sacrifices to bring people to who? To God. That's the lamb's role, right? Even under the Old Testament, what was the point of all those sacrifices? Wasn't it supposed to be bringing them to God? Now, we know the, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs didn't do that, right? But that's what it was supposed to symbolize, right? So now we have this figure that is supposed to be bringing people to some God. But this one, this religious figure speaks lies. And its authority or its power has been strengthened by somebody. Okay, so what we're having described to us there is a priest. The question is, what kind of priest? Well, let's keep reading and see if we can figure that out. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. What kind of priest? Aha. This guy is a religious figure who, as a priest, is supposed to take the people to their God and their God is the emperor. So this is the high priest, or the priesthood, if you will, of emperor worship. They had a priest. If you're going to be a god, you've got to have a priesthood, right? So these are the people or the person who's responsible for the continuation, the perpetuation, if you will, of this priesthood of the, or the uh, god, godness of the emperors. This first beast is the emperor. The second beast is the high priesthood or the priesthood of the emperors. So where does that go? Well, let's keep going. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lives. And I wanted to read all of that little part right there because we need to get this. When you read about him doing some kind of signs or stuff, you have to recognize those are fake. And the reason you have to recognize they're fake is because the text says through those signs he's deceiving people. If they're real, it's not a deception, is it? If they're fake, it's a deception. You know, you've got your little kid 
when they're small enough and you get their nose right, you don't really get their, well, I don't know, maybe you do. You don't really get their nose, do you? It's a fake, right? But they believe it, right? That's why it's so much fun. Okay, well, this priesthood, they're able to do things much like, much like the priests in Egypt with the ten plagues. They can do things that look very magnificent or above everybody else, and they're fooling people into thinking since they can do all these things, that proves that they're right, that the emperor is a god, and so the people are supposed to go through them to approach this emperor. Now, I'm going through this in such detail because it's going to be important as we get to the most famous part of this chapter. So hang with me. Verse uh, 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I don't know whether this means that he literally had some kind of a statue that he faked could speak, but... What was, the, what was it that a high priest did before the people? I know what his job was. His job was to take the people to their God. But how did he convince them that he was important enough to keep his job? Why don't you just pick another guy? You know, you get tired of this guy, just pick another one. Huh? And, and how did he do that? See, uh, do you remember? Let, uh, wait, let me ask it this way. Under the Old Testament system, God's way, there were not just priests. Were there? there were also prophets, right? And what was the primary difference between the two? Okay. The priest took the people to God. The prophets brought God's word to the people, right? Okay. Well, the priest, the false priest of idol worship, or in this case, emperor worship, as a priest are supposed to take the people to their God. But what did we just read these priests do? Yeah. What they perpetuated was God speaks to me and I give it to you. So you can't get to your God without me. I mean, you've seen the history documents or the uh, documentaries or even just the movies. That's the way culture worked it then, wasn't it? If they had a high priest of some deity or whatever, that deity would speak to them. And you didn't know any better, so they'd tell everybody, this is what God told me today, so let's sacrifice this person or let's do this, and, and then this will be what's happening. That's what happened with the priesthood. And so that's the way this priesthood is being used in emperor worship. They're challenging the people, and the people don't have access like this priest supposedly does, and they can't confirm whether he's telling the truth or not. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know whether it connects to this at all. Probably just historical, but I don't know that. All right, now let's keep reading. Here's an important part, verse 16. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is the part where I'm talking about everybody, everybody knows about, right? Nobody knows what it means, but everybody knows about it. So every time you hear about some government or some experiment that they're thinking if they could put a, like those chips that your pets have, the chip so that if your pet gets lost, they can scan it and it gives them a barcode and then they can figure out whose dog or cat this is so they find out it's from Georgia and it's in South Florida, right? Those things. You, but they can put that on people and so nobody would ever go missing again or uh, you know, we'd be able to find people. You get out in a boat, your boat sinks, guess what? We've got to, we, we can track that chip with a satellite. And then we start saying, wait a second, that's the mark of the beast. You can't do that. You can't have a chip on you that'll track you. Or we say, okay, how about this? You're always afraid somebody will steal your wallet or your, uh, 
or your uh, credit card? What if we put a chip in the back of your hand and then all you had to do is walk up to the counter and run your hand across it and it pays for something? And the only way anybody's going to steal you is they take your arm, right? So you can get, when they say, wait a second, there's the mark of the beast. We just read about it. Nope. Hang with me. <laughs> I know you're being funny. Hang with me. Listen to this. Rome did it. See, there was a way that they could make people worship the emperor. And here's how it worked. Okay, the, the first beast, the emperor, gave power to the second beast, right? Which is the high priest. The high priest then kept his power and kept the position of the emperor by forcing the people to worship this emperor, right? But how could you do that? How could you force it to happen? Well, you could just beat the people into submission, but history's always shown us that didn't really actually work. You know, it might, it might show a little bit of peace for a little while or at least hold things down for a little while, but that's not going to build a unity that's going to keep a nation going, is it? You can't do it by that kind of power. So the other way you do it is this. We're going to give you a document. And we're going to give you this document, and this document authorizes you to, to, to do trade. You can work. You can have a job. It's kind of like a license. You've got to have a license to buy a car or get a loan, or you've got to have a license to go get a house or some kind of identification, right? You get how that works? Okay, they had that. The problem is you couldn't get the identification from the government unless... You sign every year that the emperor is a god and you worship him. So the high priesthood had access, and if you don't do that, guess what? You're cut off. You see how that works? That's all we're reading about here. But there was a number. This is, this is exciting. I love this right here, even if it's confusing you or you're thinking I've lost my mind. This is my favorite part, verse 18. We, let me read 17 again, just so we keep it going. No man may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Number of the dragon? The number of the beast. Okay, the beast is the one that the second beast is getting people worse, so it's the emperor, right? Or even the second beast could be qualified here, but the number of the beast. For it is the number of a... Man, his number is 666. I talked about that on Sunday morning. You get on a cruise ship and they booked you into room 666. What do you do? You can't stay there. You can't stay in room 666 because it's the devil's room, right? Only problem is that has nothing whatsoever to do with what he just said. There is never going to be, well, I shouldn't say never. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody already has been foolish enough to go to a tattoo shop and put it in their head. I don't know. Probably have probably have or their forehead but didn't we say something about signs aren't literal and they don't represent themselves and don't we have a list that i've already put together and we've confirmed a lot of those as we've gone through this book about what those numbers mean and what was the number of seven it's the number of deity the number of deity is the number seven and that's why you see that number used so much in relation to god like the seven spirits of god and what was the number of six it was the number of man. It's beneath God, right? When Jesus took the form of man, he became beneath, made him a little lower than the angels. Okay, the number six is the number of man, which is beneath God or less than God. What was the number three? 
A complete and ordered whole. So in chapter 4, when we saw these living creatures around the throne and the 24 elders and all that, and they're casting their crowns down and bowing down before the throne, and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Why were there three of them? Why wasn't it good enough just to say, Holy is Lord God Almighty? Why holy, holy, holy? That is a statement of the absolute, perfect completeness of God's holiness. There's not an ounce anywhere in God that's not holy. And so, as John now sees this vision and hears this message, he sees this first beast come up, and he's an emperor, but he's claiming to be a god. People are having to worship him. And then the second beast comes up, and he has the authority, and both of them are getting their their position, if, if you will, from Satan, right? The dragon, okay? So the second one comes up, and he... It has the ability to force people to worship and follow this emperor. And then you get to the end of the chapter and John says, but if you'll pay attention, this guy that says he's a god and this guy that calls you to worship a god and makes this god speak and all that stuff, they're not gods. They are completely men. There's not an ounce of them that's a god. So when they looked at Domitian, or for that matter, any other emperor, and they had this high priesthood system that said, you got to sign this document so you can buy or sell or you're not going to make it. Here's their choice. Here's God and here's their God. Only problem is, what do you know about their God? He's just a man. Why worship a man? So all that number means. So the next time you get on a boat or you get a hotel room or something like that and you walk up and the number 666 on there, guess what? It's okay for you to stay there. It's okay. That means it's a man's room. That's all it means. Probably smells since it's a man's room, but that's all it is. And so all this is saying in chapter 13 is, this guy that you're so afraid of is just a man. So should they be afraid of him? In fact, didn't Jesus himself say, fear not those who can kill the body, but can do nothing to the soul, rather fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell? He's just a man. Don't be afraid of him. All right, chapter 14. See, half of what we covered Sunday, we covered tonight. We take 40 minutes. I'm not moving very fast, am I? Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So, well, we've seen these people before. Not just because of the number, but because these people have something on their heads. So in between the sixth and seventh seal, there was a pause or a parenthesis in order for God to put a mark on some people, a mark on their heads. And that mark was something to identify them as belonging to God, which was symbolic, right? They weren't people walking around with a Sharpie mark on their head that said God's, right? This was a symbolic mark that God recognized. Here they are again. Here they are again. And this time, this is happening on Mount Zion. Now let's ask why that's significant. What? And by the way, that's not a location, although it is literally a location. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's talking about is a position. What was Mount Zion? Does anybody know? We sing the song. We're marching to Zion. Hmm, that's close. That's pretty close. There was a temple hill, right? It's where the temple was. Okay, Mount Zion or Zion is that temple hill, but most especially the area of Mount Zion is supposed to be the area of the most holy part. So it's the place where where God is. Remember 
in the synagogue as well as in the temple. There's a holy place and there's a most holy place and there are specific elements that are placed in each or items that are placed in each one. And in the most holy place, there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? And the Ark of the Covenant has things in it and uh, it has things on it. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the seraphim and their, their wings are stretched out and their wings are over what's called the, the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat is where God met the people. The high priest would go in one day a year and meet God at the mercy seat. Okay, that's about Mount Zion. So it's about, uh, or that's considered uh, Mount Zion. So this position, what we're reading about here is all these things that have happened with these partial judgments of Rome from the trumpets. And then you have this parentheses where we read about what John's supposed to be doing, what the church is supposed to be doing, what God's going to be doing or has been doing with protecting them and providing for them. And now you got these two beasts shows up, and while they're coming out of the earth and the sea, and they are completely in holy man, where's God? He's still exactly where he was supposed to be and where he was when it all started in chapter 4. So nothing's changed, right? Persecutions get worse. Does God panic? Uh, did Rome catch him off guard? They surprise him? No. The point is, everything's going exactly the same way God knew it was going to go. So he's still there. And guess what? The people that he marked, who will be able to stand? Here they are. They're going to make it, aren't they? And he knows exactly who they are. Yeah. All right, verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters like the voice of loud thunder and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps and they sang as it were a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders see everybody's still there right this is exactly the way chapter 4 was the elders and no one could learn that song except 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes these were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the lamb and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, we're going to stop there, and let's, let's pull this together, and then we will we'll quit just a couple minutes early. Uh, so you got this scene. God's still on his throne, Mount Zion. That's where God meets his people, right? And the people that were there in the beginning. Wait, wait. If it's the same people that had the mark, where were they in chapter 7? They're on earth. They're on the earth. That's why they had to have the marking. They're not anymore. Now, the reason this is important to me, in my mind, goes all the way back to the thing that was happening in the city of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a chapter in which Paul is correcting error beliefs about the resurrection. Uh, see, they didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't get it. I don't know that we get it. Uh, until you actually experience it, it'd kind of be hard to understand, right? And I don't think anybody here's, no, nobody here's gone through that. So, uh, so they really get it. So they had this idea: we're waiting for the return of Jesus, but these people have died, and since they've already died, well, when you've died, what else do you do? It's not like you can continue on in your house or your car or your job or whatever. That's it, isn't it? And so if you can't continue any of these other things, well, you can't keep waiting for the return of Jesus either. So they, once you, if you've died, then you've missed the resurrection. What Paul says in chapter 15 is, how can you be resurrected unless you first die? How can you resurrect something that hasn't died? 
So, uh, so that was his point. So now as you get to chapter, to this, this section of chapter 14, what's happened is we've got to this place where all the way back in chapter 7, where the answer to the question is who will be able to stand, there's 144,000 symbolically, all the faithful of God's people that he knows, and they're on the earth, and now here they are in chapter 14, and they're in heaven. How'd they get there? How'd they get there? They died. He died. Well, that's not the most positive message, is it? I mean, don't you think that what they wanted to hear was, Rome's not going to get me? What they heard was, unfortunately, Rome's going to get some of you. But you still win. Rome doesn't win. Death is not defeat. It actually is the passageway to victory. And so God has the power to see people through from this life into the next life. So then what did they have to be afraid of? Now, I don't want to be naive and think that they weren't afraid. You'd have been afraid, wouldn't you? I'd have been afraid. But doesn't it change your perspective on all of that when you truly understand and comprehend the fact that God's got it all under control and he's not going to be surprised and he'll get us from here to there just like he did them? See how important his promises were to them? Okay, we're going to pick up there again on Sunday, so let's close with a prayer tonight, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight, and we're so thankful for your word. We pray, Father, that we will have the strength and courage to depend upon your promises, knowing that you always fulfill your word. Help us, Father, to trust in you in all things and to shine your light throughout our world. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.